Assalamu alaikum brothers and sisters, I'm Sister B and welcome to Islamic Audio Bites. We'll be continuing to listen to the Crusades, the Mongol Scourge from islamiclegacy.org. Let's listen. Ahmed ibn Taymiyyah, Prologue. The seventh century after Hijra saw an evil shadow cast over the Ummah of Muhammad, peace be upon him. From the west, the jackals of Christendom returned once again, following the departure of the Kurdish Sultan Salahuddin Ayyubi. At the same time from the east, having lived in obscurity for thousands of years, emerged the Mongol horde. Like a swarm of locusts, this barbarian horde perpetrated atrocities on the Muslim nation, the likes of which had never been seen in the history of mankind. As Ibn Khaldun wrote, the people of the faith had lost their courage and their will to defend themselves. But Allah, the Almighty, the Most Powerful, took pity on the Muslim Ummah, sending her a race of warriors from amongst the nomadic Turkish tribes to the north to defend her frontiers and drive the invaders back to the lands from whence they came. But this story is far from complete. The Mongol imperial dream to enslave the world was alive in the hearts of the Ilkhanids, the descendants of Hulagu Khan. It was true that the Ilkhanids had suffered a series of setbacks. The losses at Ain Jalut and Hims, the internal civil war with Berke Khan, who had converted to Islam and led the Golden Horde against them, and the skillful tactics of Sultan Baybars along the Mongol-Syrian border that had destabilized Ilkhanid control over the area. But these were only temporary setbacks. For the Ilkhanids, the struggle with the Muslim Umar was not a matter of petty revenge for these insults. No, the very existence of a strong Mamluk state in Egypt and Syria challenged the legitimacy of the Mongol Empire and its imperial dream. Not only were the Mamluks successfully resisting occupation, but they were forcing the Mongols to withdraw from lands they had already conquered. If the Muslims were allowed to defy the will of the great Khan, the foundation upon which Genghis Khan set out to rule the world would be destroyed. The very survival of the Ilkhanids was contingent on the destruction of the Mamluk Sultanate. This was the first and only priority. It was this train of thought that led the Ilkhanids to suspend all other campaigns and focus on the conquest of Syria and Egypt. It is difficult for one to contemplate a more potent threat than a resurgent Mongol horde, and yet an even more insidious attack aimed at corrupting the very soul of the Muslim Umar was in play. The core beliefs of Islam regarding the very nature of Allah and his attributes were being openly challenged from within the Umar by Muslims corrupted by Greek logic and philosophy from the likes of Aristotle and Plato. These so-called intellectuals began to speculate about the nature and attributes of Allah without considering the guidance in the Quran and Sunnah and ignoring the limitations set by the prophets of Allah. To combat this movement, another group of intellectuals arose that tried to counter the philosophical arguments. But not only were they unsuccessful in their goals, 
they became corrupted by the very same mindset and methodology of thought. The impact of this line of thinking on the Muslim Ummah was devastating. Much of this philosophy was adopted by mystics that proceeded to mix the true Islamic belief with these heretical ideas and concepts. These were then thrust upon the unsuspecting people of the Ummah in the form of secret rituals, magical spells, and charms. Further corruption came from fringe sects and foreign religions. Amongst the Christians, a new evangelical movement sought to criticize Islam and set up Christianity as a viable alternative. A number of Christians of European origin began to criticize the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, directly and challenge the Muslim Ummah to debate and argumentation. The practices of the Christians and Jews also began to filter into local Muslim communities. Among them was the polytheistic concept of attributing divine attributes to holy men. Unfortunately, those responsible to preserve the sanctity of Islam were themselves embroiled in factional conflicts. The four schools of jurisprudence had already been well established by this time, and the cadres of jurists that stemmed from these centers of knowledge became fixated on their own respective schools of thought. So narrow was their vision that they became isolated from the people. As a result, they were unable to apply the Quran and the Sunnah to shield the Muslims from these attacks. The main effort of the learned within these groups concentrated on proving the prominence of their school above all others. For example, the Shafi scholars felt insulted when the Qadis were appointed from other schools of jurisprudence by the Mamluk Sultan Baybars. When the rule of Baybars' descendants came to an end, some Shafi scholars even went so far as to consider it a divine punishment for what Baybars had done earlier. The intellectual war against the Ummah had gained considerable momentum. To undo the damage that was being inflicted on the collective Muslim mind, a number of tasks must be accomplished. Among them was the need to comprehensively and decisively refute the philosophical challenges posed by the logicians and the dialectics. The fundamental truth of the Islamic belief had to be upheld against the challenges posed by Christianity and Judaism. The Islamic creed had to be clarified once again, and the beliefs of the Muslim people had to be purified from irreligious practices and rituals. The task of reviving the truth and fighting the cancer of disbelief, innovation, and corruption that was afflicting the soul of the Ummah was an immense undertaking that could only be addressed by one appointed by Allah Himself. Indeed, it is about these very individuals that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, Indeed, at the beginning of every century, Allah will send for this nation He who will revive for it the matter of its religion. The Ummah was in desperate need for such a reviver, and Allah responded by sending such a man. His name was Ahmed ibn Taymiyyah. Chapter 1 Exodus Ahmed Taqiuddin ibn Taymiyyah was born in the reign of Sultan Baybars, three years after the Battle of Anjalut in 661 Hijri, or 1263 of the Common Era. He was born in the city of Haran, 
in what is now modern-day Turkey to a renowned family of Islamic scholars. His grandfather was a teacher of the Hanbali school of jurisprudence. His father was a teacher of Hadith, and his brother's uncle and paternal aunt were also scholars. When Ibn Taymiyyah was seven, the Mongol horde set out to attack his birthplace of Haran. Along with the general populace of the time, the family of Ibn Taymiyyah fled towards Damascus. The terrifying stories of punishments and torture had made their way across the Muslim lands. After all, Damascus was in Mamluk hands, and what better place to be than under those who had annihilated the pagan Mongols at Ain Jalut? Ibn Taymiyyah's family set out on the journey, leaving all but their precious books behind. They did not have any beasts of burden to pull their carts. This job was done by members of the family themselves. The route was perilous, and the atmosphere full of terror, as they did not know if or when the Mongols would catch up to them. On one occasion, the traveling family of Ibn Taymiyyah came perilously close to the Mongol columns. At that time, the wheels of the family's cart became stuck. Ibn Taymiyyah's family fell prostrate on the ground, beseeching the help of Allah to save them from the impending doom that was coming their way. At last, the cart began to move, and so too did the family, on towards the safety of the Mamluk-controlled Damascus. The city of Damascus welcomed the family of Ibn Taymiyyah with open arms. Ibn Taymiyyah's father was invited to talk at the great Umayyad Mosque, where he attracted a large audience, devoted students, and other scholars alike. He was given the position of head at the famous Hadith school of Sukariya. Of all the abilities of the family of Ibn Taymiyyah, they were perhaps known most for their sharp memories. At an early age, it became apparent to the family of Ibn Taymiyyah that even by their standards, the child had a remarkable memory. The historical record contains the following account. Once a scholar of Haleb, who had come to Damascus, heard of a prodigious child, Ahmed ibn Taymiyyah, renowned for his marvelous retentive power. Coming to a tailor's shop near Ahmed's house, he sat down there to wait for the child. After a short while, the tailor pointed out the boy sought by him. He summoned the boy and asked him to wipe off his tablet so that he could write on it. The boy handed over the clean tablet to the scholar who wrote eleven or thirteen traditions on it, and then asked the boy to read them once carefully. Now the scholar took back the tablet and asked the boy to repeat what he had read. The boy repeated them all without a single mistake. The scholar got the tablet, wiped off again, and wrote thereon a few transmitting chains of the traditions. The boy went through these and again repeated the whole thing. Astonished at the feat of the boy's memory, he remarked, If God wills him to live, he would be a genius without a peer in the whole world. It was natural that the young Ahmed would be interested in Islamic scholarship, given his innate abilities and family background. He was able to memorize the Quran at a very young age. His father directed his studies toward the Hadith, which he memorized and studied carefully. He learnt and committed to memory all the famous books of Hadith. 
His father's position as head of the school of Hadith in Damascus must have proved beneficial. He was able to not only distinguish the authenticity of Hadith, but to apply them to practical problems of the common people in all aspects of their lives. Ibn Taymiyyah was constantly in pursuit of knowledge. He studied the famous six collections of Hadith more than once from different teachers. Similarly, he would learn the meanings of Quranic verses by going over more than a hundred different commentaries of a single verse. So sincere was he in wanting to learn about the true meaning of these verses that he would prostrate himself often, supplicating to Allah, O teacher of Adam and Ibrahim, teach me, teach me. It has been noted that Ibn Taymiyyah sought knowledge from more than 200 scholars, including several female scholars, such as his paternal aunt. His learning was not limited to religion alone, though, for he also studied many of the secular sciences of his time. For example, he mastered Arabic grammar, identifying mistakes within Al-Kitab Siboe, the preeminent authority on grammar and syntax. He also learned the history of pre-Islamic Arabia, as that of the post-Islamic era. Though he was not a student of history, his knowledge of this field was acknowledged by historians who described the depth of his knowledge as remarkably astonishing. Such was the case when a group of Jews produced a crumbled piece of paper written in the old script, suggesting that the prophet, peace be upon him, had exempted the Jews of Kaibar from the payment of Jizya. This document bore the signatures of Ali, Sa'd ibn Mu'ad, and a number of other companions as witnesses. Some scholars accepted the document as genuine, and issued a verdict that the Jews should be exempt from jizya. However, once it was shown to Ibn Taymiyyah, he immediately recognized it to be a forgery, giving at least ten reasons for his opinion. Among these he noted that Sa'd ibn Mu'ad had died before the Battle of Kaibar, and that the verses imposing jizya had been revealed three years after the Battle of Kaibar. By the age of 19, Ibn Taymiyyah was an accomplished scholar and was given permission to issue legal verdicts. By 22, Ibn Taymiyyah's father had passed away and the son began teaching hadith in place of the father. It wasn't long before he was elevated to the Grand Mufti of Damascus. The first speech he delivered in public became an historical event in itself. As Ibn Kathir notes, esteemed scholars present went as far as to write it down verbatim. Ibn Taymiyyah had a large following of students. Amongst the more well-known of them were Ibn al-Qayyim, al-Dahabi, and Ibn Kathir, whose works and tafsir of the Qur'an are popular in the English language. Ibn Taymiyyah's pursuit of education led him to study the works of the philosophers and the dialectics the Christians and deviant sects such as Shiites and the Batinites. Ibn Taymiyyah's piercing intellect and persuasive speaking ability allowed him to attack these miscreants at their very core. But the passionate and aggressive speeches won him supporters and enemies alike. The latter would come back to pursue him in later life. Chapter 2 taking to the battlefield. In 699 after Hijri, Damascus was rocked by news of a renewed Mongol invasion led by Kazan, 
a great-grandson of Hulegu Khan. However, the Mamluk Sultan of Egypt, al-Malik al-Nasir Muhammad ibn Kalawun, had set out at the head of a powerful army to confront the Mongols. The relief of the Damascenes at the prospect of rescue turned to panic when the Mongols gained the upper hand, defeating the Mamluk army. The reaction of the nobles and scholars amongst the population of Damascus was that of hysteria. The elites amongst the populace fled in fear. With the majority of the nobility, the administrators, the cadis, and the scholars gone, and Kazan knocking at the gates, the city soon erupted into anarchy. Communications with other cities were cut, prices of goods skyrocketed, and prisoners from the local jail broke out, looting and setting fire to parts of the city. Kazan was a curious character. He had ascended to power by apparently agreeing to convert to Islam in exchange for the crucial support of another Mongol, a devout Muslim by the name of Nauruz. However, once in power, he maintained the pagan beliefs and rituals of his forefathers, acted to abolish the jizya, and had Nauruz executed. It was under these terrifying circumstances that a delegation of the remaining ulama of Damascus met with Kazan to appeal for peace. For most, if not all, this would have been the first face-to-face -face meeting with a Mongol king. They trembled with fear, unable to find a voice. This certainly isn't surprising, given the sight of Mongol soldiers in general, and the king in particular, and given the stories of torture and rape that would most certainly have plagued their minds. But what clearly shocked the Mongol king, however, were the actions of a lone young man amongst the delegation. The following eyewitness account of Ibn Taymiyyah's actions appears in the historical record. I was with the sheikh on this occasion. He set forth in his address to the king the Quranic verses and the traditions of the prophet, enjoining fairness and just conduct. His voice, gradually rising, he was drawing nearer to the king until his knees were about to touch those of Kazan, who was attentively listening to the sheikh, but did not appear displeased with him. He was straining his ears as if struck by awe. At last he asked, Who is he? I have never seen a man like him so brave and courageous. None has made a dent in my heart as he. The sheikh was then introduced to the king. The sheikh said to the king, You claim to be a Muslim. I have been told that you have with you a qadi and an imam, a sheikh and a muazin. Yet you have deemed it proper to march upon the Muslims. Your forefathers were heathens, but they always abstained from breaking the promise once made by them. They redeemed the pledges they made. But you violate the word of honor given by you. You trample underfoot your solemn declarations in order to lay a hand on the servants of God. Further to this, when food was put before them, Ibn Taymiyyah refused to participate, noting that it had stemmed from the looted property of the Muslims. As noted by Kazan's Qadi, At last, when the king asked the sheikh to pray for him, he began by saying, O God, help Kazan, if he has taken up arms to defend thy religion. If not, then do whatever thou desirest with him. The companions of Ibn Taymiyyah trembled with fear, lest they should all be executed because of the sheikh's impudence. 
but they were amazed to see the king say Amin to his prayer. Kazan not only bade Ibn Taymiyyah farewell, but also released Muslim captives under the sheikh's perseverance. Ibn Taymiyyah also secured the release of many Christian prisoners, pressing Kazan to release all the Jewish and Christian captives because they are under the protection of Islam. And so Kazan granted amnesty to Damascus. This truly remarkable episode is perhaps the first time that the historical record captures the young Ibn Taymiyyah taking center stage. A meeting between two parties, one a king with a massive army and a fearsome reputation, and the other, a young man with none but Allah to aid him. This young scholar, empowered by faith in Allah and belief in the righteousness of his cause, had learned to wield the verses of the Quran as fearsome weapons, and he uses them unflinchingly with the confidence of one who has a firm grasp of the truth. Taymiyyah attacks the soul of a ruthless king, subduing him to the extent that Kazan abandons his plans to conquer Damascus, instead releasing prisoners and even saying Amin to a dua that is in effect a reprimand for his actions. Kazan's deputy in charge of Syria, however, had other ideas. His forces entered Damascus and massacred a number of civilians, selling off women and children into slavery. Soon they laid siege to a fort, using the locals as forced labor. In such circumstances, nobody dared venture out of their homes for fear of being obligated to attack the fort. During a Friday service in the great Umayyad Mosque, Ibn Kathir notes, there were not enough worshippers to make up a single row. However, news soon arrived that the Mamluks of Egypt were coming to Syria's rescue once again. Upon hearing this, the Mongol invaders retreated hurriedly, leaving Damascus in a state of lawlessness yet again. Ibn Taymiyyah took it upon himself, with the support of some citizens, to maintain law and order and root out the vices that were taking hold during the brief Mongol rule. The sheikh could be seen touring the city with his friends and students, destroying wine casks and punishing the drunkards in accordance with Islamic law. But the young scholar had to take more decisive action when the Damascenes learned that the Mamluk Sultan al-Nazir Kalawun would not be advancing to head off an impending wave of new Mongol attacks. The citizens of Damascus made preparations to migrate to the safety of Egypt. But Ibn Taymiyyah gave a passionate speech, instrumental in preventing another mass exodus. After conferring with the governor of Syria, the young scholar set out towards Egypt to seek an audience with the Mamluk Sultan. There he confronted al-Nazir Kalaun with the following words. Even if Syria had not been part of your dominions, it was a duty incumbent on you to have come to its rescue in this hour of danger. The responsibility for its safety rests on your shoulders. But if you care nothing for its welfare, tell us, and we shall make our own arrangements. We shall select a monarch who would at least defend the land against its enemies. Remaining in the presence of the Sultan for eight days, Ibn Taymiyyah managed to persuade him to come to the defense of Syria. The sheikh arrived back in Damascus only to find that a large number of residents had already fled. Their flight was in vain, however, as the Mongols themselves also turned back, leaving Damascus in peace. 
But this tranquility didn't last very long. In 702 Hijri, news trickled in yet again that the Mongols were setting out towards Syria. Once again, the population of Damascus began to flee in panic. This time, there would be a confrontation between the Mamluks and the Mongols. And like Ain Jalud, the result of this conflict would determine the fate of the Muslim Ummah. At this time, when it was critical for the Ummah to make its preparations and summon every ounce of its courage, an intellectual challenge was leveled against the will of the Ummah to resist the Mongols. Some Muslim scholars questioned if the Mongols should be fought at all, since they had converted to Islam. At a time when the Ummah was desperately in need of unifying its will and its determination to resist the impending Mongol incursion, this argument had the potential of confusing the Ummah, thereby sapping its strength and its moral courage to defend itself. Ibn Taymiyyah was well aware of the dangers of this argument. He acted immediately by writing an open letter to the Muslim Ummah, where he categorized non-Muslims according to their various beliefs and then clearly stated the Islamic point of view on the kind of relationship that was legitimate with each such group. That is it for the Crusades, the Mongol Scourge. Hope you're enjoying the story. Can I ask that you leave a review and rating wherever you listen and to share the podcast with your family and friends. We are on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and we're also on YouTube as a voice-only channel. Do join our Islamic Audio Bites community on Facebook and Instagram and follow me on Twitter. We've also got a website. Please do check it out at islamicaudiobites.com. If you'd like to contact me directly, please do so at sisterb007 at gmail.com. As always, hope your day is full of goodness. Assalamu alaikum.